Welcome to the GeoMob Podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, whether for fun or profit. Stephen, how are you doing? Good to see you again. Good to see you too, Ed. I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. We're about three, four weeks away from the next round of GeoMob events. First up in Finland, and then a few days later, we're on the 18th, we're going to have one in London. So yep. looking forward to that. We got Easter before then, so a little bit of a break. Um, but so we're trying to crunch out some few pro- a few projects before the Easter break, basically. So what's happening at OpenCage? Anything exciting? Any new stuff going on? Well, geocoding Apart is all... From- Apart from telephone numbers, of course. Uh, well, geo geocoding is always exciting, Stephen. Uh, you know, every single day. But we do have actually a new feature that's coming live. Um, are you familiar, Stephen, with UN low codes? Do you know UN, what a UN UN low code is? So the, I know U- what I knew what the UN country codes were, but I don't know what a low code is. Okay, so uh, the UN low codes are is a is a collection of codes about a hundred thousand, hundred and fifteen thousand different codes um, gathered by the United Nations, and the idea is that these are codes that can be used in logistics. So it's a five character code used to describe um, critical infrastructure places for logistics, so like harbors, airports. Things like that. Um, the idea being that uh, in a supply chain, you know, obviously, if imagine you have cargo coming from China or wherever to Northern Europe, um, you know, it's going to go through many different links in the chain, and those links, people all speak different languages and have different technical systems and whatever, and refer to places by different ways. So the UN came up with this series of codes that you can use to refer to the places. So you know, gotcha. Like, um, Antwerp Harbor has a code or, um, you know, whatever, all these kinds of places. Heathrow Airport. Exactly, exactly. So we we are now going to add, we we have several customers in the logistics space, and so we're going to add two new features. One is that you can search for the codes. Um, So if you you put in a code, we give you that information. And second of all, um, as an annotation, so if you search for a location or you put in coordinates or whatever, um, we add all this information about that location, and one of the bits of information we'll be adding is if it's in the area of, of one of these low codes. So, so kind of a niche feature, but useful for people in the in the logistics industry. And also, probably with the focus in the last couple of years of sort of su- supply chain vulnerabilities, actually having a common language for talking about. This, these items went from China via Singapore to to Antwerp and then by air to Heathrow or whatever. Um, it's quite useful. Yeah, nice. Well, that's that's the idea. I mean, apparently, you know, I'm not I'm not in the front lines of the logistic industry, but actually, quite a bit of it is still not well digitized. You know, they, things are moving through many different systems, and and so it's easy for data to get lost or misinterpreted along the way or whatever so the the codes are we we and this this feature actually came about because we have some customers you know that were like oh we we need to use these codes can you help us search for them and things like that so um anyway so you wanted exciting steven you got exciting so yeah there you go. un low codes um so I've got no exciting news at Mapri apart from I don't know whether I told you that after I put a call out we got a third editor on to Mapri. Dan yes, you did mention. You did oh, mention. I did mention that. Okay, so that's um, that's the exciting news. New energy, new excitement, lots of posts. End. Very nice. Very nice. Um, well, so what are we going to talk about today? Now that we've covered all the excitement, what else? Um... We're going to talk about the business of geo and we're going to talk about two recent news stories and what they mean about business models in geospatial Um, but before we actually start talking about them i want to pose a question to you that we can keep in mind as we go through this conversation so my question ed is how big a pile of 
money do you need to burn to create a unicorn? Probably a fair amount, Stephen. Probably, uh, also probably much more, much more today than probably a couple of years ago, I guess. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, so, so let's so dive let's, in then. Let's dive in. Let's dive in. Who are we going to? What are we going to talk about first? Should we talk about the recent news first and then step back a little bit? Yes, let's let's go with that. So um, there was some interesting geo news, specifically relevant to London, in that uh, London startup City Mapper was acquired um and so city mapper I, I assume many of our listeners know and use this service I, almost everyone i know who lived in london uses it or did use it at some point it's um an app for getting around the city to help you help you find your way around the city city mapper was first presented Stephen, at geomob all the way back in 2011 uh, by the founder who it, I think it was shortly before they actually even launched. Um, right. So it was kind of when the, maybe they were in beta or he was talking about the project. Uh, and then I think they spoke again a couple of years later. Um, uh, but I guess it, I think we can say, uh, you know, it, it really swept London by storm. I remember when I lived in London. I mean, everyone I knew started using City Mapper. Um, for a while, for a while. And it was the poster child of the UK's open data movement. Um, right. you know, because the enabler for CityMapper was real-time transport data being available. or trans In fact, it wasn't real-time at the time. I suspect it was just schedules, but even that was sufficient. Right, um, so, and they, they would kind of aggregate up all this data, all the different modes of transport and networks and, and of course combine it with a very nice slick interface uh, and i remember they had some some very kind of cool features like you know you could find a place to meet if you have, if you know you have a friend in south london yeah. and and you're in north london and you want to find a convenient place to meet that's easy for you both to get to and things like that um but it pretty rapidly morphed into navigation by public transport because if you were navigating by car um, I don't think they did it at all. And, you know, by 2011, Google was pretty much dominant in that space as far as navigating by car was concerned. Well, that, that could be. But I, honestly, you know, I think, you know, the value proposition of City Mapper, as you can, as, as the name suggests, was, of course, in the city, people where there is public transport or where there's... Um, you know, this was kind of also just before the kind of rise of micro mobility. I guess back then you had the Boris bikes, but now you have all the other different modes, the scooters and everything. Uh, maybe less so in London. You guys don't have the uh, the rental scooters, do you? Or the um... the lifts and the birds and the exactly, exactly. You know, yeah. not um, as much. So, but the thing about City Mapper was it was a big hit. I think it was more of a hit with the tech community than it was with the user community, but that doesn't matter. It was a big hit. Um, but if you remember, for many years, I used to sit at the back at Geomob and ask people what their business model was. Um, and people used to laugh at me, but now um, I don't even have to ask the question because there's loads of other people who go to Geomob and ask the question before I can get it out. Um, and it was never clear what city mapper's business model was um and they they tried various things i mean they were clearly in they clearly saw a space in intra-urban transport and navigation and they tried um they had a bus for a while, didn't they? Or a couple of buses. They, they eventually bu had a bus, yeah. I mean, we should also say they raised a lot of money. They yeah. raised uh, uh, quite a lot of money. Uh, and, and yeah, and then eventually at some point, you know, then they tried where you had to, you had to pay for the app or you could, you could get some sort of premium tier on the app. But there's just not enough. I mean, because, like, how many people live in London? 12 million? I mean, even if every one of them pays... You know, if, if, if you pay, I mean, how many are going to use the app? Let's say half. If each one of them pays, you know, a pound or two a month, uh, it's, it's, it's not enough. And it's very difficult, I think, to go above that because you have a free app from the transport networks. And, yep. um, the, the other point about City Mapper, you know, so I, 
I lived in London until 2015, and then I moved to Barcelona. And I had been a city ma- an occasional city mapper user in London. And then I arrived in Barcelona, and you know, city mapper had rolled out to other cities. But I have to say, there just aren't that many cities that are as complicated as London. Steve. No. I mean, Barcelona is very simple to get around. It's, it's really not that difficult. The tube network is small. I mean, geographically, it's smaller. The tube network is smaller. The, the, the public transport apps, you know, have gotten better. Um, I think the, I think when CityMapper first came out, I mean, first of all, apps were new, you know, the, um, and, and they really had a, there was a gap in terms of usability between them and your, let's say your average public transport app. But over the years, people have copied, people have copied the best practices and, and hired good developers and, you know, in some cities that the apps are excellent, absolutely excellent. And I think that, um, one of the one of the consequences of open data is that everybody has open access to the data. That's what open data is about. So, um, at the heart of a urban navigation app is the schedules of the trains and the buses, and the walking routes and things like that. And that's all available to everybody else. So. Over time, Google's um, public transport navigation has got pretty good to excellent. You know, um, there's an app called Move It that's in a lot of cities. Um, various other people, I think Apple Maps has public transport navigation. It's sort of a a common feature anymore. So they've got nothing to distinguish them particularly, I don't think. But let's... Let's just reflect on the fact that um, a couple of weeks ago, it was announced that CityMapper had joined VIA, or VIA. I don't know how you pronounce it. I would have said VIA. What would you say? VIA. Okay. <laughs> I, I, so, I think it's American governing, and I think in, in America you'd say VIA. Okay, so we'll call it VIA. Is it a potato or a potato? <laughs> I... I uh... Yeah, so I, I'm I'm familiar with Via. They I explained exactly what Via does. They um, they are, also are more of an offline player, right? And that they're yeah. actually organizing ride. They're helping you helping cities set up the infrastructure around ride sharing and car sharing and things like that. Yeah, they were running running transport for a while, right? Uh, but I think they've moved away from that. And so there's a common pattern here because City Mapper thought that they could run smart transport and know where to put their buses and everything because of the data that they were getting out of the um, navigation app, but that never really took off. Anyway, VIA raised $100 million, which is impressive. Small round of applause for those guys that they did that. Um, And now they've gone shopping, and the first thing that they've bought apparently is CityMapper. should be said that CityMapper raised, I think, and don't hold me to this, something of the order of $40 million. Um, and they were still raising money in 2022. Um, I think they got some top-ups from their existing shareholders and investors. Um, they were hemorrhaging, <laughs> is the only way to describe it, um, if you look at the accounts, you know. I think... 7 million loss something i don't know 7 8 million loss a year um sure. well, I'm, i mean they had a you know if you have a team of highly skilled engineers in central london it's not cheap it's not cheap so so city mapper has gone to been absorbed by via um there's no information about what via paid for it um but well, the the speculation that I saw was that at, at best the investors kind of got their money back, and and most likely probably didn't. Um, I think the early investors might have got their money back. I think the people who invested in twenty one and twenty two took a severe haircut. Probably, probably. I mean, you can't imagine Veers paid forty million for this, or even no twenty million. Yeah. No, you can't. Yeah. Yeah. So. 
So what lessons, what conclusions can we draw from all this, Stephen? Well, I think we conclude that, I mean, the, what I conclude is that unless you've got a clear idea of who your customers are and what problem you're solving for them, you can't make a commercial proposition. And just building, you know, apparently uh, City Mapper had 50 million users worldwide. Well, when you mm. say 50 million users, that sounds pretty impressive. Um, whether that's 50 million active users or 50 million people who've downloaded the app and have got it sitting unused on their phone is another matter. You know, I mean, I don't know how many of those users are active, but even if they're active, if they're not paying, all you're doing is pay, you're, you're generating expenses for servers and cloud and developers yeah. and all of that, you know. There has to be a revenue model. Um, and I suspect um, that that is the, uh, you know, that's the reckoning moment for CityMapper, according to something I saw um, in the year... Um, to December 21, they lost 8 million. And in the year before that, um, they lost 7 million. You know, if you're using 7, 8 million pounds, that's sort of 10 million dollars almost, 9, 10 million dollars a year. How long do you go on for before you say, this isn't really working? Yeah, I mean, for me, the question is, is it, is it even possible in, to compete with something like Google Maps or I guess maybe Apple Maps in the consumer space at all, given that they are so entrenched that they're by definition on every single phone. I mean, every Android phone has Google and every Apple iPhone has has Apple Maps. You know, but the minute the minute it comes out of the box without the consumer having to do anything. And you know, as we said, you know, the open data, the 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 schedules are there for everyone and and the the network operators the mobile the the transport network operators obviously have have also probably been on a journey over the last ten years of improving that data making it easier to digest getting you know understanding that okay we need to prevent we need to provide good data if we want Google and others to to be able to show it and consumers at this point expect it so you know is it really possible how are you gonna what are you going to create that's going to be so much better than these standard default apps that you can actually eke out a profit from it? Well, it's got to be something very spectacular um, to actually get people to pay for it. Yeah, I wonder. I just don't. I wonder if it's even possible at all. I mean, I can see in the business space, you know, B two B space, you can have. There are routing apps and things like that that target, for example, uh, courier services or, or things yeah. like that, where, where you know, their time is money. And, and if you're truly providing a better service, uh, helping them do their job better, then, you know, that has a value and maybe they, they pay for it. But in the consumer space where people are very price sensitive, don't know. Don't know. No. I, I just think that the combined momentum of Google... I mean, Google, you know, how much have they invested in maps over, over the decades? Um, Billions. Really, the, the only person I can see competing is Apple, really. I mean, you mm. know, who, who has a similar war chest and, of course, has the iPhone. So. And it's questionable, you know, and, and it's questionable whether Apple will compete, you know, whether they've got the, whether they see having their own mapping app as being so important. Um, well, I think they don't obviously don't want to depend on Google. So, I mean, then the, what are the other options? Of course, that there are other proprietary providers that they could pay or but I don't know. I, I, you know, anecdotally it does seem like Apple Maps is gaining share amongst amongst iPhone users. So, do you use um, it? I do, you know, sometimes when you know, often if you're in an app and, yes, uh, by accident you use by it. By accident you use it, and but then yeah. it's not it's not as if I then back out of Apple Maps and open it up in in Google or so or or, or one of the OpenStreetMap apps. It's it usually it's good enough. I mean, yeah. it's more than good enough, and so then I use it. Um, because usually in that situation, it's more about 
I'm on my way somewhere or doing something. Like I don't have time to to faff about. But um, so I don't know. I mean, I think it's good that there are more options. It would be it would be depressing if there was only one option. Um, so, but I do think the I do think the idea of starting you know, raising investment to start a new consumer focused navigation app or, or mapping app. That, that's a, that's a challenging proposition. Yeah. You know, I, I, and, and, you know, I'm sure I, I can, you know, the people who worked at city Mapper, they were, they were smart and presumably, you know, worked hard on it and they really did have some innovative features when, you know, as I said, like, um, you know, I, I can remember when it first came out, people were, there were, there was a hardcore of very loyal users of people who really liked it in London. Um, but as I said, I think London is uniquely difficult to get around. Um, so uh, I guess, I guess the other player in this space would be Mapbox, who I know you also wanted to talk about soon. Yeah, we well, to that topic? shall we talk about Mapbox? Yeah. Um, I mean, this is a different story, isn't it? But it's still a it's a it's a related story. You know, Mapbox, which is another poster child of the geo startup world. Um, there was an article published a couple of months ago now, I guess, or yeah, about how the Washington Post is replacing Mapbox with open source solutions. And um, a guy called Kevin Shaw uh, wrote about this. And we'll put a link in the show notes to this because I think it's worth it. Um, he, said, he was talking about how they had re-engineered to produce maps without using Mapbox. Um, and it was a very technical article. Um, and I think probably we'd both recommend anyone who's interested in the technology to do this goes and reads the article and then works out if they want to do it themselves. Yeah, what, what I think is interesting here is it's not just that they, um, you know, got rid of Mapbox's maps and put in some other provider's maps. Uh, it's that they're, it feels like the, on the mapping side, the technology has kind of made a leap, right? And particularly there's a new um, service called Proto Maps, who uh, I'm going to actually have the the inventor, the the... the the, I guess the founder of Protomaps on the podcast. I'm, I'm due to interview him tomorrow, so we'll probably run that episode the week after this episode runs. Um, and this this is kind of a different model. Uh, and basically, it enables you to run your maps much more cheaply than than on something. Of course, much more cheaply than Google, but also much more cheaply than um, something like Mapbox. Um, I'm going to get into all the details with him about how exactly that works. But my understanding is it's particularly useful in the case where you don't, you know, basically you, you buy the data, you buy the, the maps once um, in a kind of unique format, and then that's it, you're done. If you, only, you only pay again if you want fresh data. Okay, so in many use cases, for example, at the Washington Post, um, you know, they don't need perfect street level data. If you have a story about, I don't know, the, the war in Ukraine or whatever, you know, it's probably enough if you have, you know, the cities and, and you can kind of show things. You don't need, you don't need freshly updated data every single day or anything like that. So you have a chance to cut the price of operating those maps radically. Uh, I mean, I mean, you know, 90%. So it does at this stage still require quite a bit more technical skill, I would say. Um, which obviously an organization like a, a large media company like the Washington Post probably has. Um, but, but this is very interesting. Uh, I mean, this is definitely a, uh, you know, a, a disruptive moment in, in the, for the mapping providers, I think. Absolutely, because if I understood the old Mapbox model, um, they were targeting large media companies and, uh, and other organizations which had large usage where they were showing them some savings over doing the same thing using Google Maps. Right, and that savings was based on the fact that, um, you know, the data was largely open data, open street map and, and other sources. And so thus Mapbox didn't have to pay anything to get the data. 
and 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 thus the price you could offer it for a much much more affordable price than than Google. That being said, um, well, I guess we should also say Mapbox built a lot of the or, or or funded much of the development of the technology that became kind of the modern web stack. Yeah, uh, things like Leaflet and and things like that. Um, but in the last few years, they've kind of changed direction. It seems that they're focused much more now on the automotive industry. Um, I guess because that's where the money is. I mean, you know, again, if you're not make, you've got to make the money somehow. And how many large media organizations are there that are willing to pay a lot? I'm not. I'm not sure there are enough. When especially when you've taken a lot of VC money and you have a sky high valuation. Uh, as Mapbox did, um, so I think uh, you know Mapbox has also had a few other challenges along the way. Uh, I mean, they had this whole situation with with Amazon around their, um, you know, then they, they had this rendering library. This is, they, they, in this case, I had a lot of sympathy for Mapbox because it was basically Mapbox they built, um, you know, this rendering library that then. It was completely open source, and all of a sudden, then Amazon AWS could take it and offer it offered um, offered on AWS as a hosted service, right? So Mapbox puts in all the work of developing it, and then AWS comes along and wants to commercialize it. So you know, is this is this a nice move by AWS? Absolutely not. So so what what should Mapbox do in that situation? You know, they can't if they just keep offering it as uh, under fully open source and keep developing it. You know, all they're doing is is making AWS's product better, and, and AWS can undercut them on price, and of course already has a, um, you know, already has a direct billing relationship with many many companies and things. So, so that's very difficult. So, Mapbox changed the license on the software. So that you know that that no that you couldn't do this. You couldn't just take it and offer it as a paid SaaS service. Um, but you know, of course, many people in the open source community didn't like that. Um, and, and it just in general, it seemed like Mapbox kind of turned away from open source uh, yeah, quite but a bit. You know, I'm going to say. Let me say. One of the criteria characteristics of open source or healthy open source community is that a project is not owned by one company sure. and where you get um, a project like it was the Mapbox um, JavaScript library that we're talking it was, about it was like the it, it was they have two they have leaflet for just putting a map on a web page uh, is Mapbox GL yeah. Uh, this, yeah. And, and it allowed kind of 3D rendering and all kinds yeah. of different It was rendering. very neat, right? Yeah. But the fact was that it wasn't, it was very much, I think, owned by Mapbox. And it was put out as open source, and that was cool. Um, and of course, when they made it proprietary, somebody took um, the last open source release, forked it into MapLibra, um, and then a whole load of open source developers from around the community jumped in and said, ah, well, we'll work on this now because we're not feeding the Mapbox business with our efforts. Um, and so it's become a very popular um, open source library. And I think... Um, well, now, now there is some there is an organization around it and that organization recently got funding also from AWS. Yeah, to and AWS, you know, pays for people to work on it, but I don't know. I, I mean, the question is, what would you have done if you had been in Mapbox shoes? You can't just sit there and let let, you know, you can't fund the development of your competitor. No, 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 no. I, I mean, you, I'm not. So. I'm not blaming Mapbox at all for that, Ed. I'm ju I'm just observing that it was a bit of it was some generous open washing. Um, or maybe so, not open washing because it was open source. It was definitely it was open source. source. I mean, yeah. the issue is, uh, I know that there are several. There were some. There are some Mapbox projects that have thrived in open source. Leaflet being a great example, right? Where, 
which I it, the leaflet didn't originally start at Nutbox, but then then they they hired the the main developer, and there are other people now who contribute and. Uh, I don't think anyone would say Leaflet is a is a Mapbox project. It it's no. kind of it, it survives outside of Mapbox, even though uh, some of the developer the main developers uh, is funded is an is an employee of of Mapbox. Um, but they did have some other projects that technically were open in the sense that the code was there and you could get it. But you know there was wasn't any documentation. There wasn't any real desire for contribution from others. There wasn't any explanation of you know, how to set the software up. So, you know, getting the code is one thing, but then you need the whole infrastructure of, you know, how do, how do the pieces connect and how does, how do I actually run this myself? And, and, and that was lacking. So you could say, was that lacking because it was an intentional policy or was it just, you know, everyone's busy and I, uh, you know, the, the last thing, I don't know any developer that loves writing documentation. And so people, you know, obviously it gets neglected. So I don't know. I don't know. Um, anyway, I don't, the, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I guess, um, you know, whether Mapbox, we shouldn't criticize Mapbox for trying to make some of their projects open because um, we're both in favor of that. Uh, and they are perhaps now living with some of the consequences of that approach. And uh, businesses in the future may think think more carefully about the benefits or otherwise of opening up um, code. Um, well, Stephen, I have to say it, it is a bit of a, a tightrope dance. Uh, you know, so my own is. business, you yeah. know, of course, we, we, we obviously rely heavily on open data, but also around some of the open source software in the OSM ecosystem. And some of it we do fund the development of where, where uh, so specifically, for example, Nominatum. We pay, you know, for the for the the primary developer of Nominatum. We every month, we pay her to work on it, and but without any uh, any influence of what she works on. We just say, here's some money, keep working on it, you know, or very minimally, you know, uh, you know. Sometimes we when we come across bugs or whatever, we might say, hey, can you help us with this or whatever. But they're legitimate bugs for all users. They're not they're not you know unique to us or whatever, and and we also contribute to the code and things like that. And we do have competitors that use the software who don't contribute anything. And it, it, it does leave a bad taste in my mouth to, you know, every month to be sending money for my competitor to get better uh, and, and getting nothing back, you know? So we still do it because I want the code to be better for me, but I don't, I don't know what the solution is there. I don't, um, I, I'm not, offering a solution I don't think um, I think it is a challenge and Amazon have a track record on this um, you can buy a service from Amazon and have a hosted Postgres server or a PostGIS server for example you know and you know, you know Thousands of people probably are using this service from Amazon and paying Amazon money, and the people who develop Postgres get and PostGIS get nothing, get nothing mm. for it. You know, um, and I think the fact that Amazon are learning because Amazon are now putting money, as you said, into the Map, Map Libra project. Yeah, I, I don't know. I would welcome it if Amazon. I, I mean, so first of all, I have to say I don't track all of their activities, so maybe I'm just ignorant, but. You know, it does feel like some of the big companies like Google have made major efforts to support open source from the very beginning. Mm. You know, they famously they have their Summer of Code project. Mm. They sponsor events and things like that. And some of the big companies like Amazon, um, frankly, also Apple, you know, have never. You don't really see them no. giving back. No, you know. Um, and that doesn't mean they're not doing it, but they're certainly not visible. They're not visible, exactly. Um, so, anyway, though, let's let's not let's 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 get back on, on to uh, to Mapbox. Yeah, yeah. What, yeah. Uh, I don't I don't know what to think of Mapbox because you know at this stage they've been going now for I don't know probably close to fifteen years. I mean, it's got to be at least twelve years. Uh, Many of the original people who were there have, have left, which, which is normal over, over that kind of time span. But, 
you know, the, these are the people who created many of the very the, the products and the services that were very innovative when they first came out, and and made them, you know, help make Mapbox such an exciting company. Uh, and now it just feels like that that buzz is kind of gone, right? And as far as I can tell, you know, like this issue with the Washington Post, it may well be that Mapbox just doesn't even want media companies as customers anymore. That they've shifted their focus purely to the automotive industry. Um, which, which, which may be a good commercial strategy, but I don't think so. Um, I don't know. I mean, the, the other point is this whole uh, issue around the unionization of, of their employees where uh, you, to be honest, I never, I never got into all the details of, of what happened there, but, uh, you know, several people have left in under quite uh, unpleasant terms and, uh, I've seen some accusations being thrown about that you know they 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 tried they tried to organize a union and then that was kind of suppressed and then the union didn't come and and then layoffs happened and all the, or, the these organizers were laid off and I, you know I, you never know what to believe when you only see kind of one side of the story um, but it's just a shame because I I do remember this used to be quite quite an exciting dynamic company. Indeed, um, but it's not the first exciting, dynamic, innovative mapping business that's got bundles of funding. Um, who is it that um, Samsung funded? Um, Mapsen, Mapsen, Mapsen. Yeah, yeah. similar story. Broadly similar story. You're correct. Similar story in that they, you know, had a lot of. Funding not not from VCs but but from Samsung obviously a global giant who could afford to to invest and and also produce a lot of really cool work that 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 all of it was open source which yeah. um, so much of it lives on which is fantastic but um, you know big thank you to them but then you know after I guess four or five years or so you know at some point someone in upper management just says why are we spending why are we why are we Where's this money going? And, you know, there's a shift of direction. and A boring old person in a grey <laughs> suit called Stephen Feldman says, how much money do we need to burn to make a unicorn? Right, right. I mean, you've got to ask that question. You know, uh, allegedly, and I stress allegedly because, yeah, we're not privy to the inside story. Um, SoftBank have pop pumped a lot of money into um into Mapbox. Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't know the exact number, but it was I think it was over a hundred million dollars that they've had invested into them in the last round. Yeah, I believe at the last valuation it was valued at five hundred billion or something like that. Yeah. And so and we're putting that type of money in. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, they're they're still not profitable as far as I know. Um and you've got to ask the question because they also they had an opportunity, I believe, to go into a SPAC, a special purpose. Oh, right. To kind of do a kind of reverse, reverse thing. IPO kind of, uh, yeah. you know, where the, yeah. yeah. And I actually had to go and fight, learn a little bit about SPAC so that I could understand what it was all about. But yeah, they, they did invest. They, they did have an opportunity to merge with uh, one of these vehicles yeah. um, and they turned it down because the valuation wasn't high enough. Hmm. And that um, was kind of pre-COVID, wasn't it? I think. And that was pre-COVID, yeah. yeah. And, and, then I think and it they... was a unicorn valuation, right. but just not high enough. Um, shame. You know, it, it, it's interesting, Stephen, because I think it, uh, having met the, the original founder of Mapbox, Eric, uh, several times at, at events over the years, it takes a special sort of, sort of person to have the vision and the kind of the audacity to try to go big, right? Absolutely. And, and, and I think clearly he, he falls or fell into that category. And if you don't go big, you're never going to, you, you're not accidentally going to become big. You've got to set out, I think, to, to achieve it. I agree. Yeah. But maybe at some point you also need to recognize, you know, kind of we've reached our limit or, or the, the cycle has turned or the market has changed or whatever. And, 
and then you got to take those opportunities when they're there. And and for whatever reason they didn't. And now, you know, and now the question is what comes next. And and actually, of course, Eric is is um, I, I believe he's still affiliated with Mapbox. No doubt he's still a major shareholder, but he's he's no longer CEO. So. Um, which, you know, again, I don't know the details of why that is. And also, yeah, after after 10 years, I think probably everyone's, anyone's burned out but um, and, and needs a break. But I don't know. It, you know, it's a tightrope walk, as I said, to to aim big, but then also to to not to not push too hard so that you fall over the edge. And I guess time will tell whether whether Mapbox has fallen over the edge or whether they they can still the problem is um, I think the problem for me is that there is an enormous spectrum of success between open cage or my old GDC business and a unicorn it's not all or nothing yeah, um, Mapbox had a love. Yeah, Mapbox did beautifully what CloudMade didn't do, in my opinion. You know, I mean, CloudMade was meant to be the company that would make OpenStreetMap accessible and usable and right. blah de blah, and would also put back into the community. And it didn't really work. I mean, we don't. We're not doing a retrospective on CloudMade as well today, but Mapbox, it, it really did work. You know, they produced beautiful maps. They funded some fantastic projects that have enabled lots of people to do cool things. Well, and and they, they had a lot of customers, a lot of big And they had know. a lot of customers. Huh. Now, it should be possible to do, to have a lot of customers and to work out the right number of people to hire and the right pace of development and the right focuses and turn that into a profitable business. You know, and you know, if you've got a 50 million turnover business, for example, or if you can build a 50 million turnover business and you can make eight, $10 million a year net profit from it, you've got a great business. It won't be worth a billion dollars but it will be worth a hundred million dollars or something. Well, you do have a great business as long as you don't have a lot of investors breathing down your neck who who gave you a lot of money to get there and want more. So, well, actually, Stephen, I, I was having this very conversation yesterday with a a startup founder, yeah, at a much smaller scale, I, I starting at raising their seed round, and you know they said, oh, we think the valuation should be X, and I said, well. Look, I, I have no doubt you can raise money at the valuation, but right now your company is kind of the idea and the vision and the excitement, and people people are excited for that. But in one year or whenever, in eighteen months, when that money runs out, you're going to either need to have revenues that fund you, or you're going to need to raise more money. And to raise more money, how are you going to do it at a higher valuation if unless you have the numbers to support it? And I don't think you can get there in eighteen months. And you're going to be trapped in that you may actually have a good product with some customers who who pay you and like it, but not enough to justify this valuation that you're going to need. And you're going to be kind of, as a result, you're trapped in the old valuation. So then you've either got to raise at a lower valuation, which is, you know, no one's happy about, or, 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 or I mean, you basically, you, you, you kind of paint yourself into a corner. Yeah. And you'll see. Even if you've built a productive, profitable, small, mid-sized business, exactly, you're exactly. seen as a failure. Exactly. You're seen as a failure because you can't sustain the valuation at which your later rounds of investors invested at. You know, um, you know. I mean, if we go back to City Mapper, um, you know, they took on fifty million of investment or something uh, dollars. Um, you know, God knows what valuations those were at, but you know, they're going to have been at multiples of $50 million, right? And it's like, it's crazy. How can, how can people keep investing um, 
and not see um, that there is a sort of a conflict between the valuations that they're investing at and the potential exit value. Yeah, I mean... I yeah, could this... quote another business to you um, that may be challenged in a similar way, but I don't want to put the hex on them. <laughs> <laughs> but well, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm hopeful that box can still find a way to, um, oh, yeah. to thrive. And uh, and and uh, you know all of this commentary is offered from afar. Obviously, we're not in. Yeah. The, I, I'm not. I'm not privy to the details of what's going inside the company, so it may be that we're mis misinterpreting things. But it does I mean, feel I think like if, they've kind of, you know, kind of they, they peaked a bit. Yeah, so. it does feel like that, and I hope that I hope that for the people who work there and for the great things that they've done in the past, that they find a way. Find markets where they can be successful, and there may have to be a reset of investors' expectations at some stage. But um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm minded just to conclude with the WeWork saga. Well, I don't. I I never really got into all the details of WeWork. Well, except that they. They kept taking money. They were consuming money. Um, they were always cash negative and needed to raise investment throughout their explosive growth period. They weren't generating positive cash. And the investors piled in again and again at increasingly higher valuations. And there was almost a sort of collusion between the founders and the investors to keep hyping the valuation because the investors didn't want to see the valuations go down either. Um, and of course, at some stage, it all blew up um, and the founder was paid to go away, I think. Um, but, and they sort of, they had a retrenching. Um, and of course, the basic business model, which says, take a big building, make it look reasonable, big older building, make it look reasonably nice, get loads of people to come in there and pay you relatively high rates in return for short term rental of the space. Um, that's a proven business model, you know, that other people have been doing for 20 years previously. Now that they've reverted to that, um, you know, they've got a potentially a, a profitable future in front of them, you know, and I think they also did a small IPO recently and uh, are bubbling along. I don't know whether they're successful, but I mean, I think the point being there has to be a reset in this expectation of the investors. Yeah, well, I, I think there has been. I think investors now are much more cautious, but... Um... You know, I think the question the question for me is, what does that mean for the pace of innovation in geospatial and in general? Is that are we are the examples of Mapsen and and Mapbox and and City Mapper are are they gonna are they gonna have investors learn the lesson? As a result, those projects are not going to be funded in the future, or projects like them. I mean, <clears throat> and as a result, we won't. You know, a lot of innovative stuff came out of Mapbox and Mapsen and. Absolutely, and, uh, and City Mapper. We would be worse off without it. So, is it is it the case that the pace of innovation is going to slow without these types of investment models, or is it that we're going to find more sustainable models? I don't know. Well, you ran a small business. I ran a small business. You know, I mean, they weren't tiny, but they were small businesses. You know. Um, you wouldn't have invested like that. Uh, yeah, correct. I mean, but also I don't, I don't have the money to do it. No. So, so you, the, question, exactly. the debate is kind of moot. So. Well, it's not moot. The fact is that you ran your business and I ran my business. We had some startup investment, but relatively... Oh, yes, okay, I see what you're saying. Yes, we, we do run our business profitably, and, and I, right. I guess you would say conservatively, yes. Yeah, you know, you... You contributed to Open Cage. You maybe contributed to some open source projects. 
but you did it within the confines of your business and your profitability. And you might have seeded 10% of your profitability, even slightly more of your profitability, to do those good things, to do those innovative things. And in fact, OpenCage, your business now, is sort of was seeded by an internal project that your company funded, wasn't it? You know, but yeah, yeah so it, my, my previous company, yeah. Um, yeah. But you did yeah, but, that, but that's my point. That's my point, Stephen. Of course, we do do our, our bit to give back to the community and, and sponsor events and things like that or, or fund, fund some open source development, but nothing on the scale of a Mapsen or, or a Mavis, just because we, we can't. I mean, I can't, I can't go out and hire 10, you know, no. amazing, you know, top-notch engineers and say, you know, spend the next 18 months just making cool rendering libraries and things like that. We, mm. I just, we just don't have that money. No. So, but, but, you know, the question for me is, does the community, you know, will we be able to find other models that enable that type of work to happen? Um, and there, there are some other models, you know, in, in, in Germany, there's a thing called the prototype fund, which I think is funded by the government where, where projects, open source projects can, can apply. And um, then you get a grant that enables you to work on projects for you know a year or whatever, and and they do some really cool stuff actually. And some OpenStreetMap stuff has been uh, again sponsored um, through that. But it is a different model than than you know SoftBank giving you fifty million and you 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 know you you put to, you know you have hire ten amazing engineers and stick them all in one room in California or whatever and see what they spit out. So. Um, all right. Well, do we have any final conclusions here, Stephen? Or um, how should we wrap up? Well, I think in answer to my own question, the answer is a heck of a lot. You do need a lot of money to create a create a unicorn. Yes. Yeah. You, you, yeah. you need a lot. Yeah. And uh, I think we could finish by wishing the best of luck to the people working at City Mapper now working for Via. And Mapbox as well, of course. Yeah, and Mapbox as yeah. well. Yeah, good, good luck to all of them. Good luck to all of them because they've all contributed to the rich tapestry of geospatial that we love so much. Indeed. Here, here. Here. All right, that was a bit somber and pompous at the end. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> See you, Stephen. Bye. Okay, bye. Thanks for joining us today and listening to the GeoMob podcast. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Please get in touch with us if you have any feedback or suggestions for topics we should cover. You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. While you're there, you can sign up for our monthly mailing list where we keep you informed about upcoming events. You can, of course, also follow us on Twitter where our handle is GeoMob. Thanks for listening and hope to see you at a GeoMob event soon.